So I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about the shepherd task. First of all, that God has called us as the body of Christ to be a shepherd people. Now, there is a common misconception in the body of Christ that God calls prophets to do the primary prophesying in the body of Christ. And he calls teachers to do the primary teaching in the body of Christ. He calls evangelists to do most of the evangelization. And he calls pastors to do most of the pastoring. And he calls apostles to do most of the apostling. Whatever that is. But actually, if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and following, yeah. Paul explains it this way. When he ascended on high, he took captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. Why? For the building up or the edifying of the body of Christ, that's number one, and for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Which means that the apostle's role is to do two things. One, to build up the body of Christ. And two, equip the saints to do the work of an apostle. And the role of the prophet is to build up the body of Christ and to equip the saints to prophesy. And the role of the evangelist is to build up the body of Christ and to equip the saints to evangelize. And the role of the pastor is to build up the body of Christ and to equip the saints to pastor. We tend to create these subject-object divides between the leadership in the body of Christ and the everyday members in the body of Christ. The leadership does all the apostling, the profiting, the pastoring, the evangeling, and the teaching. And everybody else just listens. And we like that first part, to build up the body. Ooh, I was so built up and encouraged by that word. Mmm, that word just built me up and encouraged me. But are you now equipped to go and do with that, the content of that word? Because that's the second component of it. Now, all of you are here because you have embraced the call to go and do likewise. You have embraced the call. And this is the thing that we... we we tend to miss when we read the narrative of scripture, okay? I've got a lot of things I'm going to try to get to today. How much time do I have, by the way? What time do you need me to quit? Feel free to cut me off any time. I'm going to try to get to this quick. All right. The Bible does not begin in Genesis 1. Scripture began on Mount Sinai. Specifically, Scripture began when God chiseled the Ten Commandments in tablets of stone. That was the first Scripture that was ever written. God wrote it. Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, and then Moses writes the Pentateuch in the wilderness. After they've come out of Egypt, after they've come to Mount Sinai... That 40-year period in the wilderness, that's when Moses writes the Pentateuch. So scripture begins in the wilderness. 
Now, if you go back to the story of Cain and Abel and hear it as one of the children of Israel in the wilderness, you understand it completely differently. What did Cain do for a living? He was a farmer. And what did Abel do for a living? He was a shepherd. And God looked favorably upon the offering of the shepherd, but he did not look favorably upon the offering of the farmer. The children of Israel, what was their profession? They were shepherds. How about the Egyptians? They were farmers. What did Joseph tell his brothers when he brought them all to Egypt? Ask Pharaoh for the land of Goshen. Where's Goshen? Out in the boondocks. Out in the cuts. Away from Egyptian life. Why? Egyptians don't like shepherds very much. The shepherd is detestable to the Egyptian. So there's this inferiority complex that the Israelites have because of their shepherding, pastoral lifestyle. They were a family of shepherds. It was their lifestyle. It was their history. It was their legacy. But in Egypt, they had to tuck it away and hide it and be ashamed of it. And the first thing God teaches them is that he prefers the offering of the shepherd. That in order to even offer God an offering in righteousness, you've got to come as part of the shepherd people. The sons and daughters of Abel. Moses grows up in Egypt as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, schooled in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he thinks when he's about 40 years old, now I'm ready to deliver Israel. You read Hebrews 11. And, and, and the author of Hebrews says very clearly that Moses thought that they would see that God had called him to deliver Israel. After all, I understand all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. I'm the lone survivor of a generation. If anybody's called to deliver Israel, it's me. That's my identity. This is what I was born for. And the moment he sets out to do it, he fails. He has to run for his life and hide in the desert for 40 years. And what happens in the desert? God gives him two things in the desert that prepare him for his destiny, but it doesn't feel like preparation for his destiny. It feels like the loss of his destiny. It's actually preparation for his destiny. What's the first thing God gives him? A family. Now he's got a wife, which means now he's got a father and a mother. He's got brothers and sisters. He's got nephews and nieces. Soon he's got sons and daughters. He's got brothers and sisters. Moses had never been a part of an actual family in Egypt. I mean, his mother was his babysitter, and she couldn't let him know that she was actually his mother. At a certain point, he discovers that, I mean, he grows up, he's too, he was not the prince of Egypt, by the way. Moses was never in line to the, the, to the throne of Pharaoh. They knew him as the Hebrew boy that she pulled out of the river. Yeah. Right? He's this Hebrew orphan that she saved. He's too Hebrew ever to be fully accepted as an Egyptian. And the Egyptians knew him as the privileged kid that was saved by the Egyptians. 
He's too Egyptian to be Hebrew, too Hebrew to be Egyptian. He's got no sense of family. And God says, you're not qualified to deliver my people because you don't understand family yet. So first thing I'm going to give you is a family. And the second thing I'm going to give you is a task. And so Jethro goes, hey, Mo, I got a, I got a job for you. And Moses is like, for real? He's like, yeah. He's like, do you want me to oversee the family investment portfolio? He's like, no, I got something better. For real? Do you want me to be your business manager? No, I got something even better. For real? You want me to oversee all of the real estate projects you got going on? No, I got something better. For real? What you got? Come here, I'll show you. And he takes him out to the desert and he shows him this flock of sheep. He goes, they're all yours. Remember, Moses' Egyptian mind, this was the last thing he wanted to do. Which is how most Christians think. Because you talk to the average Christian, the first thing they'll say is, I'm so glad I'm not a pastor. And and they think, they'll tell you that thinking they're giving you a compliment. Oh, I could never do what you do. I'm so glad I'm not a pastor. Oh my God. Thank the Lord I'm not a pastor. Because most Christians think like Egyptians. The worst thing God could ever do to me is make me a shepherd in his flock. Which means we think like Cain and not like Abel. We want to go out and farm and bring God fruit and vegetables. And God is looking for shepherds who bring him the spotless lamb. But we don't think like shepherds. Moses had to shift and submit in order to embrace the shepherd task. Feeling like he was further from his destiny than he possibly ever could be. I mean, in, in most churches, if, 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 you, if Pastor Sam said, we're going, to do, we're going to do a seminar on Saturday morning on how to prophesy. And so if you want to prophesy, come to this, this place would be packed all the way to the back. If he said, we're going to do a seminar on how to heal the sick. And we're bringing in the most powerful healing evangelist that the world has ever seen. And he's going to teach you how to lay hands on the sick and heal them. This place would be packed all the way to the back. But if he says, we're going to do a seminar on how to shepherd the souls of the people of God. And so if your heart wants to shepherd God's people, you could throw a rock and hit nobody. Because the body of Christ, by and large, we think like Egyptians. We have not yet become the people of God yet because they were shepherds. The people of God, at their very identity, Moses, if you're going to deliver my people, you got to become a shepherd. you got to understand family and you got to understand sheep. If you don't understand family, you cannot be a deliverer. If you you don't understand sheep, you cannot be a deliverer. For 40 years, Moses led a flock of sheep around a barren desert. By the way, that barren desert or that wilderness was called Sinai. Which was the same wilderness that he would eventually lead the people of God around for 40 years. He was preparing for his destiny. You have See, in the body of Christ, we tend to think that what we do in the church 
fellowship and discipleship and caring for the body of Christ. It has nothing to do with your destiny. You don't realize that this is the greatest training for your destiny that you will ever get. Because what's missing in the corporate world, in finance, in tech, in government, in education, in entertainment, what's missing in every one of those areas is the heart of a shepherd. How often do I hear people say, I've got a boss, but I don't have a shepherd. There's nobody at my company that cares about my soul. One of my closest friends left the ministry for some some issues that he needed to step out of the ministry. But he got a job working for a tech company. And they immediately, he went through a code academy for six six months. And he went and interviewed and they made him the head of the whole tech department. They put him over all the coders. And he said, I don't know why, I'm the worst coder there. He said, but what I realize is, I understand leadership. And when he defined leadership, he said, I just listen to people. And so even like the CEO and the vice president, they come into his office and they they talk to him because they know he's going to listen and he's going to share insight and he's going to support them and make them feel heard. And he's shepherding people there. He learned that in the house of God. He learned that at church from all of his years of shepherding the people of God. And even though he messed up in some ways, he still can't stop being a shepherd. Isn't that crazy? The very thing that you think disrupts your destiny. Because I hear it all the time. I've got to step back from ministry because I'm getting too busy at work. And I've got some big projects, big business projects. So I don't have time to shepherd the people. of God. I don't have time to care for any souls anymore because it's getting in the way of my work. And you completely miss the point. This is your greatest work. And then David, he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And by saying that, he was not paying God a compliment. Because in the ancient world, the shepherd was the lowest echelon of society. But David says, no, no, the Lord is my shepherd. Which means he doesn't send a hireling to shepherd me. He comes out into the field and he watches over me himself. No, no rich person shepherded his own flocks. Rich people always brought in a hireling. So you go watch. David says, no, 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 no. God is the king of all the earth, but he takes time to go sit with every single one of his sheep. And he leads them beside still waters. And he makes them to lie down in green pastures. The call to be a shepherd people, to shepherd the flock of God, is a call for every believer. Every believer. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, do you love me? Yeah, of course I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you hear that? If you love me, feed my sheep. Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then take care of my lambs. Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Which means you cannot say that you love Jesus while simultaneously refusing to feed his sheep. If you love Jesus, you love what he loves. But I'm preaching to the choir because all of y'all get that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. (laughs) 
But now the second question is how? How do you shepherd the flock of God? How do you take care of a soul? And what I find is that there's two extremes. The first extreme is over-involvement. And the second extreme is under-involvement. The first extreme, let's start with under-involvement. Under-involvement is you try to share something with somebody, they don't immediately, enthusiastically, and wholeheartedly agree. Forget you then. (laughs) Just wipe the dust off of my feet against you. (laughs) May the Lord have mercy on you on the day of judgment. See you later. (laughs) I'm innocent of your blood. I told you the truth. You rejected it. Go with God. I now deliver you to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. (laughs) Right? And we may not say that, but we emulate it because we just ignore the person. But the opposite is over-involvement. Over-involvement is I have to respond to every one of your calls, every one of your texts. The moment you text, I need to respond to that text. I'd be having a wonderful time with my wife. Excuse me, baby. One of the sheep. I'm with my daughter helping her with homework. Excuse me, baby girl. I feel that it's my responsibility to respond to your every question, to fix your every problem, to, because as a good shepherd, my job is to make sure that you never struggle. Wrong. I'm going to read you this verse of scripture. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you, everybody say you, you, may wage the good warfare. Notice Paul doesn't say, Timothy, I'm fasting and praying for you day and night, and I'm going to break through and make sure that God blesses you. No, he said, no. You are going to fight the good fight for your own faith. You are going to struggle for yourself. My job is not to make sure you never struggle. My job is not to rescue you from every struggle you go through. One of the most practical ways that we experience that is when somebody you're caring for needs money. And maybe you have a few extra dollars. Maybe you just got a nice bonus at your job. And you feel compelled. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you don't. The way you're looking at me, it's just like, mm-mm. <laughs> I ain't never felt that. <laughs> but don't you just feel that sometimes? Like, maybe God is telling me And you know what? Sometimes he is. Sometimes. But sometimes the worst thing you can do is circumvent someone's struggle by prematurely meeting their need. It's like seeing a caterpillar struggling to get out of a cocoon and saying, let me help you. Grab your pair of scissors and just kind of cut them out of that cocoon. And what happens If you cut a caterpillar out of the cocoon, you're going to have to carry it for the rest of its life because its wings will never open now. Why? Because it is the struggle that causes those wings to open. And this is the hardest part because there are some folks in the body of Christ 
that feel that you don't love them if you don't jump in to solve their every problem, to meet their every need, to respond to their every request. And sometimes you need to simply embrace the fact that they're not going to like you. But you simply need to tell them, I'm so sorry you're going through this. No, no, no. Actually, I'm not. (laughs) But I'm so sorry it's so difficult for you. No, actually, I'm not. (laughs) I wish there was something I could do to help you. But actually, I don't. (laughs) But I will pray for you. But this is the moment for you to learn to wage the good warfare over your own life. This is your moment to wage the good warfare over your own life. And so much of the task of caring for souls is simply equipping them to fight the good fight for their own faith. To lay hold of the eternal life to which they were called. Because no one can lay hold of eternal life for anyone else. Because you know the people of God, they'll put you on a 40-day fast and then go to a pizza party. The next day. And you'll see them on Instagram. Just, you're home fasting and praying and they're eating pizza. Thank God my pastor is praying for me. (laughs) People tell me, will you pray for me? I will pray with you. I will pray in conjunction. Will you fast for me? No, probably not. (laughs) Obviously not. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I will fast in conjunction with you. It's like somebody saying, will you go get on a treadmill for me? Will you swim a few laps for me? Will you please go on a diet for me? Yeah. And then come to you three months later, you're not, you're not dieting hard enough because I'm not losing any weight. Yeah. You need to work out harder. And they'll make it your fault yeah. that they're not growing in Christ because yeah, 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 yeah. you haven't done enough for me. Wow. Yeah. Part of the skill of the pastoral task mm. is remaining present but with clear boundaries. Mm. I'm still present, but my boundaries are also clear. And some will respect those boundaries and others won't. But if your boundaries are clear enough, nobody will dare cross them. Mm. Our problem is we think boundaries are ungodly and unloving. And we don't realize that not having boundaries is the most unloving thing that we can do for the people of God. Because no one will ever learn to stand on their own two feet if you carry them everywhere. So Paul says, this charge I give to you, son Timothy, in keeping with the prophecies once spoken over you, so that by them you might wage the good warfare. Yeah. And could, listen, let me ask you a question. Has anybody, by raise of hands, has anyone ever prophesied over you? 
and you felt like you got a prophetic word and it was from God, raise your hand if that's you. Number two, how many of you say, I can remember every single one of those prophecies and I know exactly what they were? Lift your hands. Can you remember 10% of them? Lift your hands. Okay, good. Okay. Okay, good. Good, good, good. Do you go home and write them down? If it's good. That's key because part of even receiving prophecy is discernment. You need to discern when it's from God and when it's not. And it's okay for you to say, that wasn't from God. At least if it was, it's yet to be revealed to me. So I'm going to put that on the back burner. Lord, if that's truly you, you're going to have to make it plain because that didn't feel like you. So I'm going to go on about my business. But when you receive a prophetic word and you have a witness in your spirit that that came from God... Paul, listen to what Paul says to Timothy. I give you this charge in keeping with the prophetic words once spoken over you, which means Paul is saying to Timothy, I remember what was prophesied over you. This is the key. This is how I shepherd you, Timothy. I remember what God said about you. And I'm stewarding that word. And I'm reminding you to steward that word. So that by those prophecies once spoken over you, you might wage the good warfare. Meaning, listen, so many believers, I wish God would speak to me. But you don't remember the last 12 things he said to you. Why would he give you something else? If God knows you're not going to obey what he speaks to you by grace, he does not speak to you. I mean, it's like, I remember... Reuben, my, my wife and I, there was this little boy who grew up in the hood. And at our last church, he used to come into my office when he was like 10, 8, 9, 10 years old. He would just come into my office, you know, hi, Pastor Benjamin. Hey, Reuben, how you doing, buddy? And I, he came to my office every day. Ter- horrible life, horrible upbringing, terrible life. But for some reason, he felt drawn to me. So my wife and I started taking him out to lunch and taking him out to dinner. Then we started taking him home for the weekend and taking him out for his birthday and buying him steak and lobster. And then we bought him a $300 bicycle for his birthday. And a week later, we went to his house to visit him. And on the way to his house, we passed the bicycle laying in the street, broken into multiple pieces. And we walk in his his place and he's just kicking it on the couch watching TV. Reuben, where's your bike? Oh, no. Do you think we bought him another bicycle? No. Because you don't take care of the one I gave you. Do you realize how powerful one prophetic word from God is? If it really is from God? One is all you need. The problem is we hear a word from God and we believe it for about 45 minutes. We stop stewarding that word as soon as the slightest indication of the opposite makes itself apparent. Uber takes too long to get here after church. (laughs) I knew it. I'll never forget. I had my, my, we used to have an early morning prayer meeting in our apartment every morning at 530 AM. A friend of mine came to town from out of town. And one morning in that prayer meeting, I was in a, dark place. I was in a, a, a depressed place, but in the middle of that prayer meeting, I, I felt this presence, like this overwhelming light. And I opened my eyes and there was an angel of the Lord standing before me. And I was like, whoa, 
oh my God. I'm just like freaked out, right? After the prayer meeting was over, I didn't say anything. I didn't say, there's an angel. I just like, oh, just inside, you know. After the prayer meeting was over, my friend came to me. He's like, did you see that angel? I said, you saw it too. He goes, I said, where was it? Where was it standing? He's like, it was right here. I was like, that's exactly where it was. We saw the same angel at the same moment. I'm like, whoa, that was crazy. Whoa. Pretty exciting stuff, right? An angel appears in your living room. And two days later, I was talking to the same friend on the phone. And, and he was like, how you doing? I'm like, I am so depressed. I am so discouraged. How come God doesn't hear me? And he just let me go on and on. And finally, he stops me. He goes, um, might I remind you that two days ago, an angel stood in your living room. He goes, now, um, I don't know if you've ever read this book called the Bible, but angels don't just appear for nothing to anybody. Like angels don't just randomly appear. That's a big thing. Like, how are you discouraged already? You totally forgot what happened two days ago. And I was like, that's true. I immediately forgot what God did for me. But this is what a shepherd does. A shepherd remembers. A shepherd remembers. Somebody in your, listen, when somebody in your house church comes to the altar, you need to follow them. If somebody's prophesying to a member of your household, you need to be listening in. You need to be listening in. You need to be listening. I say this every time I do a wedding, every time I do a a wedding ceremony, right before the vows, I look on both sides and say, everybody, you listen to the vows that are getting ready to be made here. All of you ladies, you listen to what she's about to say because she's about two weeks, three weeks. She's going to be calling you on the phone, telling you how crazy this man is that she married. And he's going to call you fellas in about two weeks and three, talk about how off the hook this crazy woman is, especially if she's Korean. I'm just just playing. (laughs) I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Korean women are perfect, especially my wife. Hmm. <laughs> but when they call you on the phone, what you need to say to them is, bro, I was there when you vowed to love, honor, and cherish her for better or for worse. You go home and you live up to those vows. You go home and you live out those vows. Bro, I heard the vows that you made. Are you aware of the prophetic words that have been spoken over the lives of the people in your house church? And are they aware of the prophetic words spoken over your life? Being transparent about prophetic words you've received. This is how we help one another to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare. We steward the prophetic words. Listen, when a community learns how to steward the prophetic word, God gives more prophetic words. But when a community just allows prophetic words to fall by the wayside, God doesn't give any more. And it's not too late. So many of you raised your hands when I asked, did you receive any prophetic words? Pull them out. Pull them out. I have a, a, a file, an audio file on my personal website. Nobody else has access to it but me. That I can click in there and just hit play. Because I've recorded so many of them and I listen to them again and again and again. And I rehearse them before the Lord. I learned that from Bishop Kirby Clements. He told me every morning he wakes up at 4 a.m. 
and he rehearses every prophetic word that he received, that he received from God. He rehearses it before the Lord. God, on this day, you said that you would do this. And he reads it before the Lord. And then he has another book in, in which is written everything that God has done in his life. He records it in a book. And then he rehearses the good things that God has done for him. He says, this is how he combats depression. This is how he combats discouragement. This is how he combats fear. This is how he combats that malaise that tries to come over you and rob you of your spiritual fervor. He reminds himself that God has made promises to me that I'm standing on. And there's so many fulfillments to promise that God has already given me. I'm going to rehearse these things before the Lord. And that's how I start every day. That's powerful. So your job is not to do the warfare for the people in your house church but equip them to wage the good warfare and all they need to wage the good warfare over their own lives. is just a group of people around them who remember what God spoke to them. I was there when God spoke over your life, when he marked you, when he said you were a mighty warrior you felt like a little coward, (laughs) like Gideon in the wine press. But God said, no, 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 no. I don't care that there's no evidence to support this claim. I am God Almighty. And if I say you're a mighty warrior, you're a mighty warrior. When God said that you were pure, when you felt unclean. When God said that you have clarity, when you felt confused. Because that's the nature of the word of the Lord. God always speaks the opposite of what you think about yourself. At that very place where the enemies lied to you, the truth of God comes to reverse it. But the hard thing is that whenever God speaks to you, the opposite tends to happen first. When God spoke to Joseph and showed him his brothers bowing down to him, what happened the next day? They beat him and sold him as a slave. We have to learn to live in that land of contradiction while continuing to believe that what God spoke to me is true. But we can't do it by ourselves. We need people around us who are contending with us. And this is the beautiful thing, that if you become transparent about what God has spoken over your life and remind the people in your group, in in your house church, say, look, I need to tell you, these are the things that God has spoken over my life that I'm still contending for. Will you contend with me? And then just begin to ask, what has God spoken over your life that I can contend with you for? And what if in every house church community, you simply had a gathering of people who were aware of the things that God has spoken over one another and contending with one another for those words, stewarding those words together. Each and every one is being equipped to wage the good warfare and to hold on to faith and a good conscience. Nobody's alone. We're together. And we're one. Amen? I'm going to ask the prophetess, uh, my, my prophetess wife, to, to take it from here, if that's okay. And she's actually going to be the one who prophesies over each and every one of you. <laughs> Amen. Hmm. <laughs> okay, well, I'll start with this. I think last night, 
while we were worshiping, I saw actually a vision for this house. And I felt like God wanted to just bring his perspective on what this community have gone through in the past couple of years. And so, like, the picture, as we were worshiping, I keep seeing this crystal clear water. It's like just just seeing it in my vision, like, refreshed my soul. It was crystal clear. Like, if you're, like, like, like in the desert and you're thirsty, right, you're dehydrated, like, imagine that crystal clear water just coming upon you. Like, that's the picture that I saw. Right, And then the scripture that kept coming to my mind was wherever the water goes, everything will live. That's from Ezekiel, right? The water, the trickle from the throne room of God. First, it looks like nothing. Ankle deep, knee deep, right? And it goes over the head. And the scripture says, wherever this water went, everything will live. And so that was like kind of the picture that I saw while we were worshiping. And then while Benjamin was preaching about like God had prepared Solomon's porch for the second half of your life, that those words actually come from Richard Rohr from falling upward. And what he talks about in that book is there's you could divide your life as a child of God, as a minister of Christ, first half and then second half. First half is like God giving you a vision. First half is like you building, you're running for your destiny. First half is you defending your life, your destiny, your community, you're fighting for you, you're fighting for your people. But second half is surrender. Second half is you're fighting for others. Second half, just like Benjamin said, is about dreaming with God, receiving God's stream. But what Richard Rohr says is transition between first half and second half is the entry point. And that transition is a necessary suffering. Necessary suffering. And when you go through this necessary suffering, it feels like a loss. It feels like a betrayal. It feels like you have failed. It feels like, what did I do? It feels like, have I done something wrong? It feels like a loss and a failure. And you have fallen. And you have to kind of embrace the shame, pain, and suffering. Not because you're a godly man and godly woman of God, but because... After all that you've done, after all that you've gone through, this is it. And there's a sense of loss, suffering, pain. But when you are able to really see this suffering as an entry, then you could really, God is, quali- God is qualifying you to start your second half of life where true anointing and true ministry where you really live for God and God's dream is being released in and through you. And so what I sensed was what this community have gone through, what PCM and Lisa have gone through. And, you know, we understand because Benjamin and I at the same time have gone through something similar that you guys have gone through. 
But you know what's crazy is Benjamin and I, we are connected to so many churches and leaders all over the world. You know what's crazy is every leader that I know, right, Benjamin, has gone through this. When they're at a certain stage and they're not the young ones, but, you know, older ones. (laughs) But I hear the Lord saying, to every one of you, because not only as a community, but even as in your personal life, you've gone through some difficult seasons. You've almost like, okay, I lay it down. It's like surrender once again. I don't know what I can do, God. I, I don't know what else. I don't know how to make it better. First half, there's still striving left in you. There's still, right? Second half, there's no striving left in you. Even if you want to fight, there's no fight in you anymore. But in that, through that suffering, God is qualifying you as you surrender, as you embrace the darkness, the pain, the betrayal, the, the, the suffering. It's an entry gate. And as you walk through that, God is, is purifying this water in this home, in this house, in your life. Wherever that water goes, everything will live. In the first half of your life, you, you search for the water so that you would live. But the second half of your life, you become the water that gives life in dead places. That God sends you to deserts and dead seas. And everything lives because you've allowed yourself to embrace this darkness, this pain, this failure. That's why Richard Rohr says you're falling upward. You have failed. You have fallen. But you found yourself as you surrender at a higher place. So can we pray? Can we pray? Can I pray with you guys? Yeah. So Nate, Pastor Nate, can you join me here? If you would just arise, can I, can we do this? Can you just come to the altar? Come to the front. Let's not just, I think it's for all of us, right? It's for all of us right now. It's for Benjamin and I too. So like, I'm right here with you guys. You know that song that you sang? Like, you are worthy of it all. That song and the song before. Like, I've never heard that before. That was amazing. Like, that song. Yes. Because he is worthy. You know, I just came back from Indonesia. We went to these uh, unreached islands in Nias. It's called Tello Island. There's 101 islands. And you know what? We... Went there many years ago, and half the islands were demon-possessed, and most of our ministry was deliverance. Like, wherever I went, people just, like, flop and just manifest. And it's like, after a while, my uh, team members are like, Pastor, we're tired of doing deliverance. Oh, my gosh. And it, it was like that, right? I mean, like, we would have service, and then we would have altar call, and all of a sudden, like, one-third of the people would fall to the ground and slither Oof. from one end to the other, like, so fast, you can't even, like, hold them, right? But then, like, we would go back 
And we would just minister. And I was like, Benjamin, you got to come, man. You got to come in. Because like the church leaders, right, were like punching and pulling. Because they, the, the people, because they're, they, were, they thought they were fighting demons. And so we had to do this training. And many years of just pouring into them, like, it was powerful. It's like... It, the first time we went, dogs had revival in the corner. Like 20 of them would howl like so demonically. And our, our, our people are like, oh, what's going on? Right? It was such a dark place. But after going back every year for a few years, like the light of Jesus, like the whole culture changed. And then pandemic happens. And just two weeks ago, I went for the first time in three years. And they're so secluded that COVID never came there. But the effects of COVID reached that island, even though the virus never went. Because it was all dark again, peace time. It was, it was devastating to see, oh my God, after all that work, these people are slithering again. And the, the leaders have forgotten what we taught them. And it was... It was pretty crazy. But in the midst of that, I saw there was only seven of us. Usually we have like 20 people going, but we had seven of us. And I saw one of her leader, a woman, Chinese descendant, 33 years old. She was praying for this junior high kid who was who's so demon possessed that he even killed a friend because the demon told him to kill the witchcraft is like it rains in that island it's root really, it's so dark and for two hours our Sharon she was just ministering and praying for this junior high kid to be delivered and her face was like red it was so red and like her sweat looked like blood after two hours of praying was he completely delivered not yet not yet but when I saw Sharon just waging this battle against this demonic spirit on behalf of this junior high kid and even though she hasn't seen success yet that she she gave all her strength she gave everything she had everything that she had learned she poured it out and her face was red and I'm just watching her and my heart just swelled with so much joy and pride and I just felt this, this pleasure of the Father so thankful for this child to give up her energy, her everything for this child. God didn't say, Sharon, you failed because he's not completely free right now. But you know what God said? I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased with you, Sharon. 
And I, I was like, I felt so honored to be her leader, her pastor, because it wasn't success that defined her. It was her pouring out her life on behalf of God for this child, her effort, life that she poured out. I said, Sharon, you gave your all. And God is so pleased with you. Now, why am I saying this? I feel like as house church leaders, it's like you work so hard, you know, to walk with somebody and you you see the breakthrough here and there. And then like you look away once and you're like, wait, you're back there again? Like what? And sometimes you feel like you failed as a house church leader. But when God sees, he doesn't see you fail, failing. But what he sees is what I saw in Sharon. You gave your all. You gave your all for me. You went all the way there because you love me. You said yes to PSAM. You said yes to SB. Not because him or this church, but because you love Jesus. For that, your Heavenly Father is so well pleased and all the suffering pain darkness that you have gone through in this past season we just open your hands and your hearts and hear the voice of your father saying it's not because you have sinned it's not because you have done something wrong it's not because something is wrong with you it's not because you have failed it's not because you don't have all it takes i feel like the lord is saying to each one of you and especially pastor sam and lisa it's nothing what you have gone through has nothing to do it's not because you failed it's not because you didn't do something right or you could have done something better no it had nothing to do with that it was because the time the divine time has come and through this entry gate God is calling this house of God into the another realm into the second half of life of this ministry where the water is so clear that wherever SP goes everything will live everything what Beijing has gone through what Shanghai is going through everything that Hong Kong has gone through God is purifying his water that he released in this house so that wherever this water goes everything will live this house will give life so I want you to just just I want you to go to God you know how when people come we don't we always come before the presence of God with a sacrifice we come to God with the gift right now open your arms come on yeah open your arms come to God with your suffering God is saying I don't need I don't need another sacrifice I don't need more money I don't right now I want you to come and before me with your suffering with the darkness and the pain and the shame and the nakedness that you had to walk through in the past season I feel like the Lord is 
say, that's the sacrifice. I feel like the Lord is saying today is that embrace it and believe your father's word. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. But it's an entry gate. It's a necessary suffering. It's a necessary suffering. When you are able to embrace this suffering without pointing your finger at God and says, why? No, remove that finger. Or even demanding and understanding. God, just tell me why, how. Just help me understand. No, no, no. You release that. You release that. God, you don't need to explain anything. But I come to you with the sacrifice of this past season of suffering and pain and shame and betrayal. God, I give it to you because you are worthy, God. You are worthy. Just like Sharon said, I I felt like I had no strength left. But you know what? I give it all because my Jesus is worthy of every effort, every ounce of energy I had left in me. God, you are worthy. You are worthy. As a house church leaders, everything that you've gone through, will you just come? Even those members that just frustrated you, just just, just kept just, just wanting more and sucking life out of you. Just come before God with, with that. God, even that was worth it because you are worthy. You are worthy, God. God, in my darkness, in my pain, in my shame, I can stand here before your presence. You are worthy of it all, God. Even though people may have pointed their fingers at me and judged me, misunderstood me, I still would stand before your presence and I would still sing and say, you are worthy of it all, God. You are worthy of every darkness, of every pain, of every suffering, God, of every misunderstanding. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. Pastor Nate, let's sing. And as he sings, I want you to just, just lay your sacrifice, your pain before God. You're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy of my song. I pour out your praises, blessing and breaking. You're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy of my song. I give you my worship, you still deserve it. You're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy of my song. I pour out your praises with blessing and breaking. You're worthy, you're worthy, Jesus. You're worthy of my song. You're worthy, you're worthy, Jesus. You're worthy of my song. You're worthy of my song. You're worthy. You're worthy. Jesus, you're worthy of my song. You're worthy. You're worthy. Oh, I give you my worship. You still deserve. 